1 Peter chapter 2. This morning we deal with the matter of freedom. It occurred to me as I studied this week that I had improperly titled this passage. So this morning I want us to consider it under the topic, A Proven Freedom. I want us to read just now 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 21. Peter writes, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now for a few moments as the organ plays, would you meditate and prepare for the worship experience? Even the best and the most conscientious follower of God needs regular and persistent and powerful exhortation and motivation to avoid the very worst of sins. And our highest motivation is, as we have seen already with Peter coming to it repeatedly in this book, our highest motivation is Jesus and what he has done for us. It is remarkable to me how often the New Testament goes again and again to the illustration of our relationship to God by saying that we are the slaves of God. Bond slaves, bought ones, indentured to him because he has paid a price to buy us. Paul called himself an apostle and a slave of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, John addresses those who are slaves of Rome. It is the slaves of Rome who are to be delivered by the intervention of God. It is the slaves who are seen as the martyrs killed for Jesus who wash their robes white in the blood of the Lamb and are crowned and reign with him. And here Peter continues that awareness that belonged to all of the New Testament writers that they belong to Jesus as slaves belong to their master. And isn't it amazing how heaven takes our most dreaded terms, like the term slave, and lets that term sparkle in its own light until its brilliance radiates and we come to understand that what we thought was a symbol for servitude and terror has become the highest goal of everybody's life to belong to Jesus, to serve him, to belong to him, to be devoted to him as a slave is to a master. The only true and complete freedom that anybody will ever have is the freedom which is the result of being enslaved to God through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And everything else the world has ever seen that is called freedom is fiction. 
It is an imitation. It is worthless and useless and false. It is not true. True freedom is to be the slave of God. And this morning I want us to look at 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25 and see what we may discover about the freedom that belongs to us in Jesus Christ. In verses 13 to 15, here is what I have called a reasonable obedience. A reasonable obedience. Where God is active, the devil is never far away. And in the history of the New Testament church, it did not take the devil long after his startling and eternal defeat at Calvary to begin to dig his heels in and resist everything that God was doing, even in the lives of those who were blood-bought by Jesus and had trusted him as Savior. And one of the early problems and heresies in the New Testament church that Peter was well acquainted with was a heresy called antinomianism. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means against the law. And antinomianism was this. There were heretics within the church that said, because we are saved, we can sin all we want to. Paul deals with it in the book of Romans where he says, what shall we say then? That because uh, Christ died and grace is there, let us sin that grace may abound. And Paul and Peter come up with the same solution. Never did God intend freedom that he has given us because of our salvation to be a license for ungodliness and sin. The antinomians said our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. We've been bought and paid for. We're free. Nothing we can do will ever affect that. So let's go out and sin and have a good time because the more we sin, the more God gives grace and the more blessed we are, the more grace we have. And Peter was dealing with a very critical issue. As we will see in this passage, the only way to silence ungodly people from criticizing God is for God's people to live the way they ought to. And a reasonable obedience is what Peter demands. That obedience is to be to what he calls every human creation. We have it translated the sense of it here in verse 13. Every human institution Everything created by man in society that is authoritative and structured and set up is to be honored by the Christian. It was a tragedy to me, even though some of the things done and said and fought for were right, to see many who called themselves Christians in the forefront of so-called civil disobedience in the 1960s. You see, God does not allow us to be judges of the law. We are to be doers of the law. We are to be subservient. We are to be obedient. And civil disobedience is ungodly and unchristian no matter who practices it. There are ways that law is to be changed, but deliberate violation of the law is not one of them. A reasonable obedience is demanded by Peter to every human institution, to the king or the highest authorities and to all of their representatives. For such, he says in verse 15, is the will of God in order that you may silence. The Greek word here in verse 15 
translated silence, the ignorance of foolish men, is the word muzzle. It is the word muzzle used of putting a muzzle on a wild dog who cannot refrain from biting. And Peter says that in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of anybody of goodwill and good sense, the good and godly life of a Christian will silence the ignorance of foolish men. And I believe it is tragic as Peter demands obedience to civil authority that so few Christians are deeply involved in the governmental process. Civil law is designed to protect all alike. As Peter says and as Paul says in Romans chapter 13, the law is designed to give everybody an equal opportunity to live as they please if they live a righteous and a godly life. Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, has made the observation that as long as sin remains a principle of human life, Caesar will always have plenty to do. Government is established by God in order to keep law, in order to keep peace, in order to keep men able to move and to do as they please freely. Freedom in the concept of law, freedom in the way of obedience is the freedom to do what is right, not the freedom to do anything that we please. Someone once said to someone who threatened him with physical harm, your freedom ends where my nose begins. Freedom is our privilege, but privilege never exists without responsibility. The most faithful Christian will be the best citizen the country has. I believe that. Because God demands of us that in obedience to the higher law he has written, we be obedient to the laws and the ways of man. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, these two passages parallel. He tells us in Romans 13 that the rulers are God's men. People in authority in government are God's ministers even if they are not believers. For Paul says no authority in government exists without the sanction of God. And I believe the New Testament which lived under a, a tyranny of Rome would affirm that any government is better than no government at all. You know, sometimes people say democracy, such as radicals in society, they say democracy when they mean anarchy. I want, you, I want to remind you that democracy and anarchy are not anything alike. You do not have the freedom to disobey the laws of man because those laws were written in a democratic society where representatives of the people, chosen by the people, wrote the laws and passed the laws and they have become the law. That is democracy. Democracy is not anybody being able to do anything that they want. 
And God has never sanctioned anarchy. There is not one instance of it. God did not trust Adam and Eve to do as they pleased. Rather, every day the book of Genesis said God met them to supervise them and to love them and to be with them. God has never ordained anarchy, neither in society, nor in the home, nor in the church. God has established authority and he commands submission in verse 13 and to submit means to recognize authority. Not because authority is perfect, not because authority is always right, but because authority is authority. Paul says in Peter Echoes, if you obey the law and yield to the rulers God has placed over you, God will protect you. And if they're wrong, that's their problem. But if you're wrong in rebelling against them, you are doubly wrong and accountable to God. Peter demands a reasonable obedience. Christians are to be the best that society has. The best way to silence and muzzle Ungodly criticism is to live the right way. One commentator observes that when God's people live as God would have them to, the ungodly who criticize them are forced to gnaw on their own malignant tongues for lack of a valid accusation to make. The Christian is to be expected to obey because it is a reasonable obedience and it is consistent with our freedom in Christ to obey the authority that exists in society. Then in verses 16 and 17, here's what I have called a revealing openness, a reasonable obedience, a revealing openness. Here we deal with the antinomian problem, the, the problem of heresy saying, let us do anything we please because we are saved. And he says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a cloak or a covering for your evil, but use it as servants or bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The Christian is commanded to live his life in such a way that his life is an open book before the world and every page of that book testifies to the goodness and the love of God. Have you ever wondered how it is people can be saved without a knowledge of the Bible or of the Word of God? Very few who are not saved will ever be saved by reading of God's Word because the carnal man, the natural man that has no relationship to God has no love for God's Word. But the Scriptures say that the Word of God is to be written on the heart of His people. And it is no exaggeration to say that every Christian in this room today are listening to me by way of television. Every one of you are the only Bible some people will ever read. 
God demands that our lives be open and above board, never using the freedom we have in Christ as a license for sin. Is it not a great responsibility to understand that people around you, some of them, will develop their opinions about God himself by what they see in your life? You are as close to God as some people will ever get. Our lives are to be open in this fourfold command. He has covered all things. Honor all men. Who? All men. All men. How tragic it is that very often the people who need Jesus the worst do not feel as though they are welcome among the people of God. He says, honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Love as brothers all men. John says in 1 John that if a man claims to love God and hates his brother, he is in darkness even until now. He's never been saved. And how else do you explain the attitudes of some Christians, so-called, toward other Christians, except by way of the fact that they abide in darkness and have never come into the light. One of our deacons has a way of wagging his head, saying, I don't know what the world's coming to. He says, sin, hatred, victory, strife, and contention everywhere. That's just in the church. The scriptures say that if you love somebody, you'll show it. And Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. And I want to say to every worshiper here today, with ears that hear my own voice, if there are those within the Christian family that you do not truly love, you need to be on your knees finding out if you're saved. And if you are, you need to confess it as sin and forsake it. I don't care what they've done. I don't care who wronged who. I don't care what the past was. I don't care who was right. It doesn't matter. We are to be imitators of Christ, this passage tells us. And when Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for their forgiveness. Has anybody crucified you? then under God you're acting like the devil when you do not forgive. And when you have a problem with forgiveness, you better understand that the problem is not with somebody else's attitude, it's with your heart. Because we do not forgive other people because of what they are, but because of what we are. Our lives are to be an open book. The world doesn't need to come to the church to see strife and hatred and bitterness. They can see that outside. Our lives are to be an open book. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And the fear of God is not a cringing terror like fear. Rather, it is a respect and an understanding that God is all of the protection we will ever need. A true reverence 
score or fear for God, as the Bible calls it, will rule out all other kinds of people. You find yourself fearful and worried about the future, wringing your hands about how we're going to do this or how we're going to do that. You just don't have the right attitude. God who split the Red Sea. The God whose glory thundered from Sinai. Whose fire fell on Mount Carmel. Whose blood ran down the cross in Calvary. Whose power rolled back the stone to reveal that Jesus was God. Can handle anything we need. And anything we face. We must not ever sin because of grace freedom is a license for our wickedness. We are slaves of God because at Calvary He bought us with an eternal price that shall never wear out. In Proverbs 13 verse 10, Solomon tells us that only by pride, pride which is condemned as human and ungodly and wicked, only by pride is their contention and strife. The New Testament says where there is one Lord, there are no divisions. Let me put the question to us, not to you, not to me, but to us, all of us, all of us who stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Does the world, when it reads our lives, see what God is? the only Bible some people will ever read. And Peter demands a revealing openness that our lives be read by the world as a powerful witness to the grace of God. In verses 18 and 20, here is a restrictive opportunity. You know, I have never met anybody who would plan their lives exactly as their lives Everybody I know would change something if there was a way to do it. And if we were looking for opportunities to serve God and to be what God wants us to do, uh, to be and do what He wants us to do, we would never choose some of the opportunities we have. And here, Peter says, our greatest opportunity is a restrictive opportunity. It is an opportunity not to act, not to react, but an opportunity simply to and to stand up and to appear as Christ did when he was divine. That is not to respond to evil with evil, but to repay. Here is a restricting opportunity. Peter is writing to a great number of people who are slaves in the churches that this letter is circulating to. In the Roman Empire, during the reign of Nero, during this period of time, there were over 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. Rome developed the attitude, why do your own work if you're masters of the world? And literally, all of the work of every kind in the Roman Empire was done by slaves. Citizens doctors, teachers, all kinds of the professions.
understanding you and I will probably never have what it meant to submit to an unjust and an ungodly government. And their restrictive opportunity was to bear up under false accusation, to suffer bravely and quietly under false Christianity of the first century did not destroy slavery as a social institution. That took many centuries. But Christianity, through this book, set in motion the principles that one day did bring an end to slavery. Well, the New Testament affirms that slaves and masters alike are equal before God. Paul writes to Philemon that he must receive his runaway slave Onesimus back, not as a servant, but as a brother in Christ. It is so unnatural in our day as it was in Peter's day for someone to suffer gracefully that Peter says that attitude of suffering gracefully when it's will convict and convince the world of sin. I am reminded as I read these verses, verses 18 to 20, where we are told to be submissive to masters, by principle submissive to all in authority. I am reminded of Psalm 37, 1 to 8, a great passage of comfort to a Christian who is persecuted as the writer of the Psalms says, God, if you endure quietly, God will bring forth your righteousness as the new day and your judgment as the light. God has promised that he will vindicate us. It is never right for a Christian to indulge in self-vindication or self-defense. It only calls attention to false accusation. We are called to suffer as Christ did. He promised that it would happen. And in verse 20 that we read a moment ago, Peter says that when you suffer because you sin, you don't have the right to suffer. But you know it is human nature. And I have found it repeatedly and indulged in education that when we deserve suffering, we're the most vocal and vociferous in denying that we deserve it. Peter says to to suffer as Christ did. When he was rebuked, he did not rebuke in return. When he was beaten, he did not strike back. When he was accused, he did not condemn. Here is what Peter demands. This is a restrictive opportunity. The word in verse 20 for buffeted is the same word that Mark uses in Mark 14, 65 when he talks about the way they beat Jesus up before Pilate. And you know, it occurs to me that this opportunity is more than a restrictive opportunity. It is a wonderful and a glorious opportunity to be able to suffer if circumstances demand in the way that Jesus did when he suffered for us. 
Peter says there's no glory in taking it quietly if you deserve it. But if you suffer quietly when it's wrong and when you don't deserve it, then God will be pleased and the world will be impressed. Then verses 21 to 25 as we finish out chapter 2. Here is a removed obstacle. The obstacle to being what we ought to be is, is many-sided. We do not know how to do what is right. It is not within our nature. We could never figure it out. We could never know what was right by ourselves. And so Christ becomes, as verse 21 says, our example. But then the obstacle is, has another side, and that side is that we do not have the power or the ability to do what is right if we knew what was right. And then the broad base on which the obstacle between man and God sits is the fact that man is eternally separated from God by his sin. And all of the obstacles were removed by Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, 21 says that he left us an example that we might follow in his steps. The word example is a word in the Greek that was used to describe what you might see in a first grade classroom. Up above the blackboard, everybody here seen that? Those big letters with the little arrows on them that showed you how to draw every letter, the upper and the lower case. And as you copy that, you have good penmanship. That's the original, that's perfect. But the further you get away from it, the lower your grade in penmanship goes. And that is the exact word that's used of Jesus. Jesus, he says, is a perfect model. You want to know what you need to be and how you need to live? Imitate Jesus. You want to do what God wants you to do? Be like Jesus. A perfect model for us to copy the word translated steps here is the word for tracks, like you were tracking somebody or tracking an animal in the woods. The Greek word refers literally to the print of the feet as it sank into the earth. Peter is saying there is nothing that Jesus is deficient in. He is a perfect model. And if you would be what God wants you to be, then follow him step by step and do everything as he did it. Of course, it is not a hollow legalism that Peter is calling for because that is to no avail. And we do not have the power or the ability to obey, but by the power of God's Spirit, we can obey him. You can rest assured that everything you face, Jesus knew about it. Hunger, poverty, thirst, toil and tiredness, weakness, suffering. Jesus knew about all of it. But his suffering as our example was unique. For not only did he show us how to live, but he died to pay an eternal price for our sins. He took our place. Beginning in verse 22, there are six direct references to the great servant song of Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah 700 years before Christ describes so fully his suffering on our behalf. 
he says he committed no sin. That's in Isaiah 53, 9. Nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, also in verse 9. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, Isaiah 53, 7. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body, Isaiah 53, 6 and 12, on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds are stripes you were healed, Isaiah 53, verse 5. We are to follow his tracks because of what he did for us. In verse 24, he bore our sins in his own body and by his stripes we are healed. The word wounds or stripes describes what you and I would call if somebody after being beaten were black and blue. The word here is, refers to the wound or the mark, the whelp that was left after someone was whipped with a whip. One commentator says this is indeed a new kind of treatment for illness. The doctor is afflicted and the patients recover. That is what Jesus did for us by his suffering we were healed and made whole. In verse 23 is the one key secret to everything that Peter demands from us, to obedience, to taking advantage of opportunity, to living an open life. The key is found in verse 23 where Peter says, referring to Jesus, he entrusted himself to God. Why is it when in the circumstances of life we struggle like a hooked fish or we fight like a trapped animal? Why is it that we cannot endure quietly and with confidence? It is very simply because though we say it, we do not really trust God. We just don't trust the Lord. The Israelites were ready to string Moses up. But Moses was calm and they thought he was crazy. But about the time they were ready to put him in a rubber room, God parted the waters and they went through the sea on dry ground. Do you really believe that God can handle anything you need? If you do, then live like it, quietly, enduring and taking what life gives and by your endurance and your obedience and your example, give glory to God. Remember that the scriptures promise, they do not suggest, they promise that the godly will suffer persecution. We are bound not only by man's laws, we are bound, we obey, we live by a higher law that goes above and beyond the laws of man. We live by what Peter calls the perfect law of liberty, the word of God. Verse 25 would suggest to us that Christians who are too highly esteemed by the world 
are not really that much like Christ. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. The godly will suffer persecution. It is no recommendation of a Christian to be universally loved and accepted by everybody. If that's what it means to be a good Christian, then Jesus doesn't qualify. Peter calls for the church to be concerned with one thing and one thing only, and that's pleasing God and obeying Him and letting God worry about the consequences. Someone may say, well, but we've got to deal with reality. We've got to deal with people where they are. Reality is God. Reality is the Word of God. And it is sin and it is abomination before God when the church tries to accommodate itself to the whims of ungodly and unspiritual people. If you want to see what that kind of approach, broadening the base of the church and opening the doors, opening participation to the point of anarchy, you want to see what it'll do? Go to Europe and see great auditoriums four times this size with 10 people worshiping in them. The world will be convicted and convinced by the stability and the tenacity of God's people in their devotion to God's word. I care for one thing in the ministry of the church. That is the will of God. And it does not bow to the whims of people. It is conditioned, it is demanded, it is dictated, it is directed, and it will be performed according to the word of God by the power of God. God's flock has suffered ever since the beginning. There's never been a time when the godly did not suffer persecution. Polycarp, one of the disciples of the apostle John, when he was martyred by being burned at the stake in the second century, was 86 years old and the Roman governor under orders from the emperor was going to put old Polycarp to death. He wanted to let him off and he pled with him saying, Sir, if you will only deny this Jesus Christ, I'll let you go. And Polycarp said, But sir, you do not understand, for 86 years he has been good to me and I cannot deny him now. The godly have always suffered. Peter himself was a witness to all of Jesus' sufferings. He saw what Jesus had to endure, and he says, you endure like that, for it pleases God. God created a universe where every sin had to be punished, but remember that God himself took our punishment. God himself lay down beside us to suffer with us and to take our pain from us. Never lose sight of the fact that God suffers when we suffer, that God hurts when we hurt, that God cares. And because he knows how we feel, he is equipped to take the sting. He is equipped to take the lash so that we may be delivered. Here is true freedom, a proven freedom, freedom in Christ. It demands a reasonable obedience. 
It demands a taking advantage of opportunity to suffer for Christ. It demands an open life. And he, by his grace, has removed all obstacles to our freedom. The question to be dealt with today is this. What would happen if you were called on to suffer for Christ? What would happen if in the church we were called on to follow the will of God even though some may not understand? What would happen if we are demanded by circumstances to take an unpopular stand in the community or in the state or before the world? How will we deal with it? Will we react or will we endure by the grace of God? That question is not so far-fetched as it may seem. For circumstances are conspiring this very day to bring government intervention more and more in every day and every step in every area of our lives. What will we do? How will we endure? By the grace and by the power of God and the only freedom we will ever have is to be slaves to Christ. May we pray. Father, I thank you that you have made a way that we can accept and endure whatever the world gives us. Father, I pray that your spirit may open the word to our hearts and instruct us and teach us this morning. I confess an inability to plumb the depths and to open the word in great detail and to explain it in clarity. But I rely on you this morning to apply it as there is need. Father, I ask you to touch us where it hurts, to draw from us life-changing commitment. Lord, I ask you that every need may be met through response this morning. Whether the need is the need for salvation, whether it is a need for deeper Christian commitment, whether it is a need to invest lives here by joining the church, whatever you would have us do today, I pray that you'll call it forth from us and give us the ability to do it. Father, may we follow you wholeheartedly all the way with one concern in our hearts, and that's to please you with a full awareness that even Jesus couldn't please everybody. Lord, give us one fear, and that is the fear of God. May the world marvel at our love and our endurance in suffering. Thank you now for what you're going to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.